Well, if you have your Bible, I want you to open to the book of Matthew. We're going to be beginning a, a journey through the study of the Beatitudes today. We're launching into a new sermon series. And so if you have a copy of the scripture, I always encourage you, especially today, I want to prepare you. Today is going to be a little bit different just because it is an introduction. And so we're going to be looking at some things that are uh, really kind of that bird's eye view of taking a look at the Beatitudes. Uh, it's really kind of taking a look at the, um, at the forest. And, and then uh, beginning next week, we're going to land the plane and we're going to begin to now take a look at the individual trees in the weeks to come. But this is a time for us to kind of get what, what's the overarching emphasis and point behind the Beatitudes. And I I believe it'll be a familiar passage of Scripture to probably a majority of you, maybe for some, not, not yet. And, and let me tell you, you're, you're going you're gonna to learn this and you're going to enjoy. And I, it's been, it's, it's been a, a passage that I've studied and I've had the opportunity to, to teach from before. And it's always been, uh, no pun intended, a, a blessing whenever I've had the opportunity to go through this. And so to begin with, though, I, I wanted to read to you a passage out of Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Uh, I want to begin there. This is Jesus really at the very beginning of his public earthly ministry. So he's probably around 30 years old. And it says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he's coming out of the wilderness. He had the temptation of, Je or of, of Jesus. He had the temptation of the devil in the wilderness. And then here's what he says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Join me in prayer. Father, help us to have the ability to understand and to see the reality that Jesus is ushering in the kingdom, that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, may we heed his call in our lives to, to repent, that we would see the things in our life that need to be addressed, that are off and that are not set apart according to your good godly standards. And so if you would, where you are right now, would you pray for yourself and just ask God to help you um, really take in today the truth of the overarching teaching of the Beatitudes. And then if you would be so kind, would you pray for me that that I will be a help to you, that this would be a passage of Scripture that will encourage and challenge, maybe even admonish you today. Well, Father, we bring this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what Jesus is about to enter into is He's began His public ministry, and His focus here is the kingdom. If you've ever studied through all of the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew is really um, each gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all are being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write out what the Holy Spirit would have them to write, but they still have their own human personality when they're writing their specific gospel account. And whenever uh, Luke is writing his, his his has a lot to do with Jesus being Savior. The Gospel of John has a lot to do with the fact that Jesus is God. He is God incarnate, that Jesus is deity. That The Gospel of Matthew has everything to do about the kingdom, the reality that Jesus is king. 
He is the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords. And often what He does, and you see it at the beginning of Mark's gospel, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth are, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. There's something that Jesus is wanting us to hear. And and when He does so, what He's about to do beginning in Matthew chapter 5 is He's going to begin what's known as the greatest sermon that was ever preached. It's the most famous sermon that has ever been preached. It's Jesus preaching at the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably a familiar phrase or, or just you've heard of it before. And it's at this point that Jesus has really kind of hit the crescendo of his popularity. He's just begun the ministry. And as a result, it even says at the very end of chapter four, it's not on the screen, but if you have your own copy of scripture, that large crowds are following him. They're coming as far as Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. People are hearing about this man, his teaching, and his miracles. Because it's one thing for anybody to get up and to teach and express some ideas. It's another thing to teach, express some ideas, and then go heal somebody. You might want to go listen to that guy. You might want to see what he has to say. And so word begins to spread, and they here they come. And now it says that Jesus is going to basically have this moment to where he's going to teach to this large crowd. And what he's doing is he's essentially kind of giving his ideas or his manifesto of what he wants the kingdom to look like and those who are a part of his kingdom, how they are to interact with one another and within the world. And so you might say, well, what do you mean by manifesto? How does this relate to me? Well, tell me if these words don't sound familiar to you. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. You ever heard that before? Please say that you have. Okay, good. All right. What that is, is this is the, as it says there, something's going on. This is the preamble of the constitution of the United States. This is what we would kind of call the introduction to to the meat and to the heart of the constitution of the United States. We have one, but you know that there's also the communist manifesto that's out there. There's all kinds of manifestos, there's all kinds of declarations that are put out there, but what are they trying to accomplish? It's not just simply saying, here's some ideas. What, what, what's going on is saying, yeah, here's an idea, but here's the intent behind the idea of how we want to live and lead our lives. When Jesus is presenting the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, yeah, here's a vision of the kingdom, of where we are going, but then also here are the values of who we are and how we're to behave along the way. As Jesus is giving this manifesto, he's saying, I'm wanting to build a kingdom. It's being ushered in. And this is how I want you, the subjects within the kingdom, to live within this world system and specifically within the kingdom. And when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what he's saying is the kingdom of of heaven, and you might also hear the term the kingdom of God. Those are essentially interchangeable. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's present. And you might say, "Well, well, how and why? Because the king has arrived. The king has showed up on the scene, and he's saying, now it's the beginning of the ushering in of the kingdom. And if you want to know what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom and to live out the kingdom, then here it is. And he lays out this incredible sermon, this manifesto of what the truth is to be a part of the kingdom. It says his, the Beatitudes specifically are his preamble 
really to the Sermon on the Mount, to the heart and to the meat and the content of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we take a look at this, what Jesus is wanting to do is he's wanting to identify the different qualifications for entering the kingdom. He says the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, how do I get in? How do I enter? How am I a part of this? And, and think about this. There are places that we have just even in today's society that if you want to get in, there are certain things that you need to be aware of and that you need to have qualifications to be able to enter. There's certain restaurants you can't go in just in, you know, flip-flops, and you can't just go in just with a t-shirt. They expect you to have a jacket to be able to get into that restaurant. Same is true for uh, golf courses. When I was in high school, I don't play golf anymore. When I was in high school, me and my buddies would go to a public golf course, and we would play, and we would show up in chacos, shorts, and a t-shirt. And they didn't mind, but we went to a different golf course and we showed up and we had on our chacos and we had on our shorts and we had on our t-shirt and they're like, no, 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 no. You need some pants and you need a collared shirt and then you can come back and you can play on our golf course. There are qualifications that are required for you to be able to enter into this place and to be able to play. And Jesus is basically saying through the Beatitudes, here are some qualifications that you need to be aware of in order to be able to enter and to also know that you are a part of the kingdom. The, the Beatitudes are all about revealing the character of someone who is within the kingdom, and the Sermon on the Mount is all about the conduct of the believer. Uh, later on, we're going to eventually get to the point of where the Sermon on the Mount, it really does kind of just get all up in your face about what, what, is, what does a relationship look like? What, what does it look like to, to really love someone? What does it look like to hate someone? What does it look like to, to, to have purity in relationships? What does it look like to have anxiety and anger? Uh, it just covers the gambit. It's incredibly, incredibly practical. But the Sermon on the Mount is also a sermon that has caused a lot of uh, frustration with people. In fact, there's a professor at the University of Texas A&M, English professor, was teaching an English composition class and was introducing her students to the Sermon on the Mount. And what she required of them was she said, I want you to read the Sermon on the Mount, and then I want you to record and write down your thoughts. And before we continue, I want you to do the same thing. When it comes to the Beatitudes, my, my encouragement and challenge to you as your pastor is I want you to know this word. I want it to saturate within you because it's not a long passage. I want you to be able to, to read it to the point to where you even understand the flow. You understand that they're not just a bunch of random sayings that go together and they're all kind of similar. I want you to be able to have it memorized. And so what my challenge to you is specifically this week Every week on Facebook and on Instagram, we, we, we let you know this is the memory verse for you to study or to memorize for the week. But for this week, what we're challenging you to do is every day is to read the Sermon on the Mount. It'll take you like two minutes, two minutes to just read the Sermon on the Mount every day. And then when you come back next week, we want to challenge you to read the Sermon on the Mount at least one time the following week, but really focus in on the specific verse that we studied. And so before we go any further, I, I, I want to I read to you the Sermon on the Mount, this passage of Scripture that this secular English composition professor had her students read. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. It says, When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain. And after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. He opened His mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then he dives into the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount. And so, what some of the thoughts of some of these students in this English professor's class at Texas A&M, here were some of the thoughts that they wrote down and they presented to their teacher. One student wrote, I don't like the Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read, and it made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Another student wrote, the things asked of the Sermon, in the Mount, of, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, to look at a woman as adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement I've ever heard. And the teacher reflecting, I, I can't help but wonder if she was a follower of Christ, the teacher reflecting upon this says, quote, there was something exquisitely innocent about not realizing that you shouldn't call the words of Jesus stupid. I find it heartening that the Bible remains offensive to honest ears just as it was in the first century. And isn't the reality of the situation that we can talk with people in a very generic, general sense of God loves you, He, he, he has good for you, but then when we begin to bring Jesus into the conversation, and the reason why Jesus came was to die a brutal death in order that your sins and your waywardness and your transgressions and your iniquities could be atoned for, that blood had to be spilt because of you and your sins and my sins, it begun, begins to become a little bit more personal. And the fact that Jesus is saying later on in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you, you got to be even more righteous than the Pharisees, the most religious elite. In fact, you got to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect in order for you to be really a part of this kingdom. And you read this and there's a sense of hopelessness. There's a sense of this is uh, absurd because how, how is this possible? And think about for someone who is not a part of the faith, who's not a part of the church, to hear this idea that a man would die on a cross to somehow save me from myself and my sin, that, that, that doesn't make sense, that seems absurd to me. And, and from someone who has not encountered the living God, I, I, why, would it, why would it not be absurd to someone who is outside of the faith? That's why we teach them and show them the truth, and we show that these beatitudes that we're about to dive into, it's not just some like random sayings that are thrown together and they sound poetic, and ah, oh, we'll put that on a platter, or we'll put that on a painting, and we'll put it up on our wall, and we'll pass by them, but we don't ever take them to heart, to, to the reality of what Jesus is trying to convey with the truth of these words and this opening salvo of this manifesto that he's presenting to this large crowd here on this mountainside. Now, I, I, want, I want to caution us that when I make the comment of how do we get into the kingdom, what Jesus shares about the character that we should have for the qualifications to be able to enter into the kingdom, that what He's not teaching through the Beatitudes is this is how you achieve or work your way into some kind of salvation. It's not what He's talking about. Now, some people have asked the question, why are they called the Beatitudes? 
Have you ever asked yourself the question, why are they called the Beatitudes? We, we, we throw them out all the time. We say that all the time. It's just simply, a long time ago, the Bible was written in Latin, and Beatitude is just the Latin word for, for blessed. It's this idea of deep inner joy. And can I just tell you that as Christians, we should aspire and we should have a deep inner joy that's within us. But sometimes we, we, we seem to be uh, a little bit grumpy and a little bit fussy. And the reality is, is that we have every reason to have radiating within us a deep inner joy, no matter what it is that we experience in this life, even if it's hard. It doesn't mean that we slap a silly smile on our face whenever we're going through tragedy or heartache or suffering, but something that we can't quite explain is a peace that transcends all understanding, no matter what it is that we are experiencing. What Jesus is wanting to declare in these eight Beatitudes is eight pronouncements of blessing. And I began to think about that, of of what does that mean to be blessed or to be blessed by someone? How, How often do we pray over someone and say, God, bless them? God, would you bless them? God bless me. What are we actually saying in those moments? What does it actually mean for there to be a blessing or a beatitude over someone in their life? And as I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go to Johnny's graduation. And at that graduation service, there was the graduate who was standing here on the stage. And on either side of the graduate was his mom and his dad. And the mom and the dad would literally speak blessing over and into the life of this graduate. Uh, I believe Paula, she mentioned to me after the service that there was a wedding that she attended where there was a large group of women for uh, just gathering around the bride-to-be and just speaking blessing into her life and just wanting to, to pray over her and, 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 and to bless her. I know of a man who he married his daughter and he spoke uh, at the reception a blessing over the daughter and the son And one of the things that we're finding is that whether it was the parents into the graduate's life, whether it was a group of women into the bride-to-be's life, or whether it was a father into his daughter and and now son-in-law's life, a blessing is not just something that is internal, though what we read are internal realities that someone is experiencing. A blessing comes from an external source. It comes from the outside, and it takes over within. And the beauty of the Beatitudes is that this isn't just something to where I want to I bless my son or I want to bless my daughter. And to a degree, we might be able to help out with some of the things in their life. But the one, the creator, the author of life, has the ability to come and hover over you, if you will, and he will bless you. And when he blesses you externally, that outside source, if you receive that blessing, you will experience an internal joy that you just can't describe Can I tell you, friend, you will not know true joy until the God of heaven and earth who is outside of your situation externally brings that a part of your life. And Jesus is saying, I want you to be blessed. This is how you are blessed by God. Now, how many Beatitudes are there? Now, some say there are nine. I believe that there are eight. And most would agree with me. Uh, Most of the, I mean, you have the right to be wrong, but at the same time, this is what it is. And so over the weeks to come, this is why I always encourage you, if you have a hard copy of Scripture, this is a time where you can mark up your Bible. And, and this is helpful, having the things up here, but having your own copy of Scripture is a chance for you to, to, to be a student. Always be a student of the Word. Don't just be a listener, be a student of the Word. And what, what you have 
is from time to time in the weeks to come, I might even be like the first beatitude. And you're like, well, is that verse one? No, it's verse three. And so what you have is in verse three is the first beatitude. And then in verse four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine are two, three, four, five, six, seven. And in verse 10 is the last and the eighth beatitude. And what happens is, is you read verse 11 and you see where it says blessed again, but what it's doing is it's, it's just continuing the discussion of the eighth and final beatitude found in verse 10 about blessed are those who have been persecuted. It's continuing that discussion. So there, there are eight beatitudes and the intent over the course of the next several weeks and including today is that this isn't going to be uh, this, a, a series on eight ways to be happy. You won't hear that, just like you won't hear from this pulpit eight ways, you know, to, you know, love your mom and three ways to help your cat's self-esteem. That's not what we're doing here. This isn't a place where we get some kind of therapeutic self-help teaching. We want to hear from the outside source, which is God and His Word, that it would creep and saturate and permeate within us so that we experience the internal reality of His truth, and then it's lived out within our lives. Now, that's how many there are. What about the structure? And some of you might say, well, this feels kind of technical. Why are we doing this? And this is why. I can remember specifically in high school and college reading the Beatitudes or reading the Sermon on the Mount, and I would literally go, blessed are the poor in spirit, skip. And I would go straight into, have you not heard that you shall not commit murder? Whoever commits murder shall be liable in court. If you're angry, you commit murder. I'm like, I want to get to that stuff. That stuff makes sense to me. Sometimes the Beatitudes, again, seem maybe, I don't know, Maybe not be the best word, but like fluffy. And it's like, what, what does that really mean? And, and I don't want us to shy away from the deep truths that are here within the Beatitudes. And part of what Jesus is doing, and also Matthew who is writing this, is they're wanting people to remember these Beatitudes. In fact, they, they, the, the, Matthew uses several different ways in which for us to remember. And the first is this. Whenever Jesus ushers or, or shares a beatitude, the first thing he does with every single one of them, all eight, they all have the same form. He gives a blessing, and then it's followed by an explanation. Blessing followed by an explanation. He, even in the first four, Matthew actually, for blessed are those who are poor and mourn and gentle and hungry, they all begin with the same letter in the Greek language, which is just the, the thing that we call alliteration. And the whole point of alliteration is in order to hopefully help you remember things. And as preachers, we get notorious for using alliteration because we want to make something powerful and productive, and, and we'll think of another P word. But the reality is, is that if you use too much alliteration, it's silly, stupid, and superfluous. So we've got to be careful with the amount of alliteration that we do. We don't force something that's not actually there. But part of also what Jesus is doing is he says, whenever he gives the Beatitudes, there's two groups of four. There's the first group of four, Beatitudes 1 through 4, and then the last group, 5 through 8. In the first group, what Jesus is doing is He's showing us that those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek and hungry and thirsty, they have everything to do with your relationship with God. It's all about the vertical. It's all about your relationship with God who is in heaven. And then the last four have everything to do, merciful, pure, peacemaking, being persecuted. These all have to do with that horizontal, the relationships that you have with others within this life. What's interesting is I can't help but wonder if he took the same idea from the Ten Commandments. 
Because in the Ten Commandments, the first six are all about your relationship with God. And if that is in order, then those last four commandments that are in the Ten Commandments are all about your relationship with others. But we got to get our relationship with God where it needs to be long before we figure out how to get our relationship with others to where it needs to be. So we want to focus on the primary, but not neglect, obviously, the importance of the secondary because we are called to love God and we are called to love people. Another thing within the structure of the Beatitudes and this is something that you might not find interesting, but I think it's so interesting. Okay, so in, in, in verses 4, this is where, again, have your own copy. In verse 4, 6, 7, and 9. Verse 4, 6, 7, and 9. At the end of all of these, it, remember the structure of this, Jesus says, here's the blessing and here's the explanation. At the end of verse 4, it says, they, for they shall be comforted. With all of these different verses that I shared with you, these four, What's being used is just a technical term called a divine passive. You don't need to remember that. You don't need to write that down. All that means is that God is in charge of this situation. God is making something happen. God makes these things so. So in a way, when you read verse 4, beatitude number 2, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How? By God. In verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What's going to satisfy? You're going to be satisfied by God. In verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy from God. In verse 9, it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God by God. Again, it's what I shared with you before. It's that external source making the reality internal within you that you can know what it is to be comforted, to know what it is to be satisfied, to know what it is to know mercy, to know what it is to be called a son, to be called a child of the king within the kingdom is accomplished by God, from God. We got to be careful. We got to be very, very careful that we don't go down the path of legalism or Phariseeism of somehow we've heard enough of the truth of God I've heard the Beatitudes. I've heard the Sermon on the Mount. I know Jesus died on the cross. I know he rose from the dead. But we have this sense, if we're not careful of, I, I know this, to where we come to a point of like, I really do deserve this, don't I, God? <laughs> like, look at what I have accomplished. Look at the life that I'm living in ministry and within my family. And we don't recognize and realize all that we have, your salvation, your hope, we got to come back again and again. It's by God. It's from God. It's because of God. Without God, I am nothing. The Beatitudes are distressing. You, you want to experience these, this internal joy? It's absent. It's, like last week, it's vanity without God. You must have God in your life for this to be so. Now, the thing that maybe, I just said that that made me really excited, but this is the thing that maybe makes me the most excited. So hang on with me here. There's also a pattern of progression. There's a pattern of progression. And this is what we're going to see and, and really unveil in the weeks to come. But again, sometimes when I would read these years ago, I would just be like, well, these, all of these are kind of the same, you know? And then I, I began to realize that I believe there's a, an order to this. There's a progression to this. L look at verse 3. The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And I got to be careful because I don't want to step on a next week's sermon. But to be poor in spirit is you recognize your spiritual condition. You recognize that you are lost. You recognize that you are wayward, that you are 
empty, bankrupt spiritually. And can I tell you, until you come to an understanding, an inward look of the reality of who you are as a man or a woman without God, until you recognize I am poor in spirit, you know what you will not do? The second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. Do you see that progression there? If you are poor and you recognize I am poor in spirit, then when I recognize my, my brokenness, my bankruptcy, and I see it for what it is, then I, then I cry out and I'm like, God, I'm broken and I'm contrite and I'm repentant and mournful of the condition of my spirit. Save me. And then what comes along is in order for you to experience that, blessed are the gentle, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble. Can I tell you that when you mourn and you are broken, there needs to be a humility that follows right after that, not just a sense of some kind of worldly guilt. You've seen it and I've seen it. There have been people that I have had the opportunity to share the gospel with, and maybe they're broken in their spirit, they're contrite, but is there a sense of humility meekness, gentleness within their soul? Or is it still, I kind of deserve this. God, give me my salvation. Is there humility there? The progression continues. If you're poor in spirit, then you will mourn and repent. If you mourn and repent, then you're going to be meek, independent, and humble. If you're meek, independent, and humble, then you will hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will hunger and thirst for right living because when you've tasted the righteousness of God, you want to live rightly. It's not about legalism. It's about wanting to be obedient to his word and to his standard because that's how he's designed it. He's the king. This is his kingdom. I want to conduct myself appropriately within the kingdom. And then when I've experienced his righteousness, his right living within my life, then if if God has brought that into your life, will we not be merciful, compassionate, and forgiving? Will we not have a desire to be pure, have moral integrity? Will they not lead us to be peacemakers, to bring our enemies into unity of a relationship? And then as a result of all of this, we'll be persecuted for it. People are going to find it uncomfortable and alarming. And and when people get uncomfortable and alarmed, whenever you're living in such a fashion that people don't see themselves, but they see God in you, that, that alarms them, that makes them uncomfortable. So some of you know of individuals who have, have gone to work. I remember when Tiffany was going to work in a place when we first moved here, and she was desiring to want to live pure and be a peacemaker with integrity, and she would arrive early to the office, and she would read her Bible in the car, and it made them uncomfortable. And though she was never judgmental or critical within anyone in that office, they did not like her because it revealed to them what was going on within their own life. Some of you, you're doing everything you can to be as nice and kind and as gentle as you possibly can, and yet people still, they don't want to make peace with you. They want to persecute you. They want to come after you. They want to harm you because you're, you are set apart from this world. You're within the culture. You're a part of the world, but you're still set apart from it. And just because you don't join in the conversation of gossip and slander doesn't mean that you're being judgmental of them. It just means I'm not going to participate in that. And so persecution very well may come your way. Also within the structure of this, you may have noticed that the first beatitude, verse 3, and the eighth and last beatitude there in verse 10, they all end with the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That's how the beatitudes start and it's how it ends. 
The kingdom of heaven is theirs. In the end, what you want is the kingdom of heaven to be yours. And again, the question is how? The, the Beatitudes identify these qualities for entering the kingdom. And if you'll notice, all of them have nothing to be about what you do, but it has everything to do with who you are. The Beatitudes are defining the nature of discipleship. A disciple is a follower. And so this is what I want to ask you this morning. This is where kind of the rubber meets the road for you, where you're sitting or if you're watching with us today. When you read the Beatitudes, someone who is poor, recognizes they're poor in spirit, they're mourn, they're gentle, they're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, are these virtues and characteristics, are these qualities, are they a part of your life? And if not, are you a disciple? Are you a follower? Again, the Sermon on the Mount is not a bunch of laws to follow in order to achieve salvation. It's not about do this, do these things, say these things, and you'll get it. It has everything to do with the Beatitudes defining what our character should be within the kingdom. And then the Sermon on the Mount has everything to do with what our conduct as believers should look like within the kingdom. The Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are showing who's a part of the kingdom and who's not, who's entered in, who's not. And if you want to know if you're in, then my question would be, are, are you poor in spirit? Because to enter, to be a part of the kingdom, you must be poor in spirit. And to continue to know that you're in the kingdom of heaven, does this belong to you? To, to give you an example of this, probably the most often question I'm asked, the most often two questions are, one is, what is God's will for my life? Fine question. And the other is, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I know? And this, this is what I would share with you. Even at the beginning, Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Other passages say, repent and believe. Repentance and faith. For us to enter into the kingdom, there must be a moment of, of recognition of our poor spiritual condition, and we repent. But, but what I see is that that attitude or quality or characteristic is what ushers us into his kingdom. But I think what helps us recognize that we are, in fact, in the kingdom of God, a part of the kingdom of heaven, is the same attitude that helped usher you in is the same attitude of repentance a part of your life now. It's not that you're getting saved again. Once you call upon the name of the Lord, you are saved, but there should be something within us as we see from the Beatitudes that there is a continual, when, when we err as Christians, when we go off, there should be a sense of, man, flesh is rising up again. I'm poor in spirit. I need this from an outside source. I, I need to be mournful. I need to be repentant. And there's this attitude of repentance, but if we're not careful, we have an attitude of arrogance as Christians sometimes. And when we think, oh, God will just forgive me. And it terrifies me because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, some of you have heard it before, there are going to be those who are going to come before Jesus and they're going to say, did I not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? I did all these things in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me, man of lawlessness. I never knew you. 
To me, that is the most terrifying thing is for people, especially within our culture, within the South, who've grown up in church and they've heard the gospel and you're sitting here like, I know the Beatitudes, I know the Sermon on the Mount, I know what it means to be saved, I know this, I know that. And you're doing all of these things, but has an external source who is God from heaven above, has He has He blessed you because you recognize you were poor in spirit, so therefore the kingdom of heaven is yours? Have you mourned and been repentant of your sin, and therefore He's going to comfort you, so that way, again, you know the kingdom of heaven is, 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 is yours, that I'm a part of the kingdom, that that attitude of repentance that ushered you in is that an attitude of repentance that continues to reveal to you, yes, I'm in. I know that the kingdom of heaven is mine, not based on me, but based on Him and His work upon the cross, and His defeat over the death and over the grave? Is it a marker of your life, these qualities that we read within the Beatitudes? So who does God bless? You're blessed not by your practice, you're blessed by your posture. The Beatitudes do, in fact, remind me of something, and we don't have time to get into it, but some other statements of Christ. You'll see on the screen a handful of references. I just want you, if you want to, you can take a look at these. They come out of Matthew and out of Luke and another passage in Matthew. And what these passages are, are, and you can disregard that, just go to verse 30. But what these passages are, just kind of as a summary for you, is people are asking Jesus about the kingdom of heaven and how to be a part of it. And just to kind of give you a little bit of a preview, some, some of it was, uh, you need to love your father, you need to love me more than your mom or your dad. Then you'll be worthy of me. He goes on and he says, if you love your son and your daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. Now that's intense. That's a, that's a, that's, 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 that's really? If you don't take up your cross and follow after me, you're not worthy of me. Later on in the Gospel of Luke, right here, Jesus has given an example. If you want to know what it is to be a follower of mine, what you need to do is you need to do like a builder would do. You need to count the cost. You need to recognize that sacrificing and dying to yourself, taking up your cross daily and following me, that it's worth it. Will you count the cost? Will you weigh it out and see that it is worth going through all the hardships of this world or even the persecution or the hate that you will receive? It is going to be worth it for you do you, do you see it when you count the cost? And sometimes what we do within the life of the church is we say, just come to Jesus. He'll give you peace. He'll give you joy. He'll give you all these different things. It's going to be good life. And some people, especially our brothers in the persecuted church around the world are like, this is hard. <laughs> this is really difficult. God, I'm living in a third world country where I was born and grew up as an untouchable in India. Where's my blessing? You know where his blessing is? It's from the external source that is God from heaven above, filling up within him the Holy Spirit so that he is comforted, he is at peace, and he has the truth of the reality that the kingdom of heaven is mine. And though I will be persecuted and go through hardship on this earth, my reward in heaven is greater. So I've counted the cost. He's worth it. Have you counted the cost to say he's worth it? Because discipleship is costly. Far too often within the church today, we're like, just come to Jesus and then kind of live however you want because by His grace, He'll forgive you. No, no, no. Discipleship is costly. Worship is costly. Re read the Old Testament when David comes before the threshing floor and he's wanting to build the temple and someone just wants to give him the threshing floor to say, here, it's yours. He's like, no, I got to pay for it because worship of God is costly. Discipleship of God is costly. And we can say, well, what do you mean by that? It costs Jesus His life and His blood and His broken body. And it costs us to be able to say, if my reputation goes through the mud, if my name goes through the mud, 
If I'm persecuted, it's costly and it's worth it because my reward in heaven is greater than all of this stuff. Though I want to live life abundant and free, he's worth it. Do you see the value of having this deep inner joy within the life of, with having the life of Jesus? And so some people read the Beatitudes and some translation will say, happier those. I don't, I don't like that translation. If you have that one, you're, you're still, you're, you're going to heaven, you're okay. But, but it's not happiness. It's a deep inner joy. And what Jesus isn't saying is, well, here's how you can be happy. What he's really getting to is you want deep inner joy? It's not simply mourn or be gentle or be hungry or thirsty. It's not simply be merciful, be pure, be a peacemaker. It's not simply be persecuted. It's really be in Christ. And when you are in Christ, then these qualities will ooze out of you and people will see and you yourself will see that I am a disciple of Jesus. I'm a part of the kingdom. So would you bow your head and close your eyes? As I mentioned last week, I do that for you not to check out, but hopefully for you to focus in. You remember that student who says, I don't like the Sermon on the Mount. I don't like the Beatitudes. It was hard to read. It made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. If you're watching online or if you're here today, can I tell you there is one who is perfect? Jesus. So yeah, Jesus is joy and peace. He is love and salvation. But can I tell you, He is the blessing. He is the blessing. You want Him. Have you truly recognized your spiritual condition and mourned and repented of your sin and turned to Jesus in humility so that you could thirst and long for his righteousness, that you might experience mercy, that you would know what it is to be pure in heart, to see God, to be a peacemaker. You want him. My encouragement to you is in just a moment, we're going to sing. As always, I'm going to, I'm going to be just standing here, and I'm going to be singing with you, but every, any, any one of you, during the time that we sing, Take this time to, to worship Him through song, but take this time to do what the Apostle Paul says in, in Corinthians 13, examine, or 16, examine your faith. Don't go based upon just tradition. Don't go just based upon anything other than, have I repented and believed in Jesus? And if those markers of repentance and brokenness are not still there, why not? Because Jesus doesn't leave you. Again, the most terrifying thing to me is someone could walk into this place and think, I'm perfectly fine because I know Bible. And you're going to do all kinds of things in the name of Jesus. And he's going to say, I don't know you because you were never poor in spirit, mournful, contrite of your sin. Has there ever been a moment where you've been broken and repentant of your sin? Salvation could be yours today. You could enter into the kingdom, his kingdom, and belong to the king. And he is a good, good king. And so, Father, I pray that for the next few moments as we sing, that we could have a time of, for some, just being reminded of your goodness, that you are a good father who wants to bless us. 
and that you have the power and ability from the outside to be able to uh, affect and, and, and bring within us internally all the things and all the blessings and that deep inner joy that we just read about. But Father, for us to experience that, we must come into your kingdom in your way. And I pray that if there are any today, here in person or online, that just simply has a question of wanting to continue a conversation of what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom and to know that they know that Jesus is their king. I pray that they would know that they can visit with me. I'd love to have that conversation. I pray this in Jesus' name.